Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60, and I guarantee you 60 exciting minutes. We have yet another great guest. I know I say that every week, but this is absolutely the case. This is the place to come, by the way, for great guests, 60 minutes, stuff you would never hear anywhere else. This is the place to come, the TNT Show. And tonight we are going to welcome Andy McIver. Andy is an expert political analyst, so you're in for a real treat. Uh, he was also formerly head of the Scottish Tories communications uh, setup. So now to our guest. Tonight, the nation talks to Andy McIver. How are you, Andy? How are you coping with the pandemic? Fine, thanks, John. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Very good of you. I'm doing fine. Yeah, I'm doing okay. It has, it was, it has been different at different phases of it. So I've got four fairly young school-age kids uh, and my wife's a doctor. So start of the pandemic, during lockdown, she was obviously at work just as normal. And I was doing the whole homeschooling thing at the same time as trying to uh, run the company. I run a, a lobbying and PR company. So that was a bit challenging at the start of it. But, you know, you just find ways to get through these things. Yeah, so what ways have you found? That's a busy schedule you've got there. Uh, yes, it, it was. It was. Yeah, it was. Look, it was. It was busy, you know. But you have to. Uh, you have to just change the way your day works. I think to try and accommodate it. I mean, I certainly found that um, rather than trying to run the business during the day, I would just keep an eye on things during the day and make sure it was all ticking over okay, uh, and then just focus on the kids. And then at night time, yeah. you know, you get them off to bed, and and you you work it. Day works. A pretty fortunate position to be honest. Not not everybody would be able to change their work around the way and you know I, I i felt for a lot of people who were trying to do more nine to five style jobs at the same time as having school-aged kids at home i mean i think it's nearly impossible uh, to do that um and you know well hopefully that that won't be required again yeah. and i think for that reason you know the school closures were particularly tough for people but you know i, I you know we found a way to get through it so well done for the benefit of the folks in the audience who might not know frankly what does a political analyst do? Well, the political analysis part of what I do is, a, I suppose, a bit of an extra, maybe the cherry on top. I mean, my main day job is uh, as a director of Message Matters, and we, we're lobbying and PR consultants. So half of the job is um, political relations and the other half is media relations. And that has kind of extended into uh, analysis on, on TV and in newspapers mainly. And I think that comes out of background and experience in politics. I mean, way back at the start of the century, I did a few years um, working for the Scottish Tories in the Scottish Parliament and at Westminster for a while as well, actually. Uh, and I was their head of communications until 2007. And so, you know, I have that political background. But I think one of the things that probably uh, leads to me being asked to do some some media by and BBC and others and writing for the Herald is because I don't really have a particularly partisan view. I've never been loyal to political parties as such. I'm loyal to ideas more than parties. And I, I you know, I, I gravitate towards what is closest to my own uh, ideas. So for that reason, I can, you know, I like to think I can give relatively impartial and reasonable analysis in response to what's going on, um, which is not all that common in Scotland, to be truthful. On either side of the constitutional debate, there's not a lot of commentators who are actual commentators. There's a lot of people who call themselves commentators and who are labelled commentators, but I think they'd be more appropriate to label them activists. And I think, you know, we need to recognise the difference between commentary and activism. And I, I like to think I can, uh, you know, be more on the commentator side of things than the activist side of things. 
Yeah. Well, that, one of the things we pride ourselves on with TNT show is reaching out, regardless of anyone's particular constitutional perspective, we want the brightest and the best on the show. And that's our main focus, frankly. And it would be great if there was more of what we do around, but sadly there isn't. So we have to do as best we can with the limited resources we have. Tell us a little bit about your own personal background, Andy. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? All of that. Yeah, um, I, I was born in Edinburgh. Grew up here in the southwest of the city in a place called Curry. And I was, you know, in the at the same primary school and secondary school my whole life, really, and lived in Curry until uh, after university. And then I moved about a little bit, not massively, but my wife was training as a doctor, so we spent a little bit of time in Glasgow when she was at York Hill, uh, and then a bit of time in Dundee when she was at Nine Wells, and then came back here before the kids were born. So. I've I've been mainly in Edinburgh. Um, I've done quite a lot of work in London, but I haven't been uh, much further than that. Um, and you know, just a a, a a nice ordinary upbringing, really. Um, not a political upbringing. You know, I, I'm youngest of three brothers. The three of us are all political in different ways. Mum and dad. I never knew who mum and dad voted for. Wasn't something we discussed. You know, news and current affairs and events, and you know, we we always have had and still do have a lot of discussion about that sort of thing. But I've never known who they voted for, which I've always been really grateful for, and it's something that I am quite careful to take on to my children as well. I don't want to, I don't want to influence them in terms of what they think about politics and ideology and who they vote for. I want them to make their own mind up, and that's certainly what I've always done. I've never been influenced by mum and dad at all. Uh, I know they always vote. I know they have views, but I've never known what they are. And I think I was always very grateful for that. I, I have a, a bit of a problem with watching people passing on their political views from generation to generation. I think it actually gets us in a lot of trouble and it's not something I'm particularly in favour of. So I'm grateful that that has not been something that ever happened to me. If I could change one thing, I might have gone away to university somewhere else with hindsight, um, just to get a bit more experience of something outside the boundaries but you know you can't really live to regret these things you just gotta you just gotta move on and I, I, I've, I've had a you know a good a, a normal but very nice life and uh, I'm now here in um, the south side of Edinburgh with we've got four kids one of whom is still at nursery the other the other is at primary school and yeah, everything is going pretty nicely thanks John yeah all right great great what's your dog's name uh, the dog is the dog is the dog is the newest addition to the family. The dog's six months. He's called Woody. He's a, a chocolate lab, uh, and he's. Uh, I built him a little house under the stairs um, with a, a, a child stair gate on it. And um, he's uh, the girls have actually been at ballet and gymnastics this afternoon, so we are not long in. We only got in just about forty-five minutes ago. Uh, at which point he got out of his house, and he was rather perturbed to be sent back into his house. <laughs> in time for me to sit down and do this interview. So that's a little bit of the, if any of your viewers have heard barking in the background for the first 10 minutes or so, I'm afraid that's, um, that's Woody protesting at his current status. Oh, good for Woody. I like people who step up, stand up for their convictions. <laughs> so how, how, how do the kids do Bali during a, a sort of, during these COVID restrictions? I mean, social distance, yeah. all that stuff, how do they cope? Well, you know, bits of it. Well, the kids cope fine. I mean, I think one of the things that I've certainly learned from the return to activities and the return to school after COVID is that the kids are coping far better than the adults are doing. And generally, I think if, if kids have calm adults around them, then they themselves are calm. 
Uh, You know, there isn't anything for these children to worry about at all with this. We really want them to go about their lives as normally as possible. They shouldn't be, you know, at at single figures of age. This is the last thing they need to be worrying about. You know, that's for adults to do. But I think if adults can behave themselves and I think if adults can calm themselves down and behave rationally and reasonably, then the kids can as well. Um, Mm. And I tend to find that the activities that they do Interestingly, the activities that depend on the children being there to make money are the ones who've dealt with it the best. Uh, Far better, I think, than some of, for example, the council-run activities, which are largely still not on because they haven't particularly had to be. They haven't coped well. But the the private activities that we pay for the children to do, like swimming or ballet or gymnastics, they have put in place really tight but workable procedures and they've coped really well. So the kids don't really notice much of a difference, to be honest, in these activities. They're just getting on with it. It's nice to see, nice to have them back. Yeah. I mean, that's great. It's a, it's a testimony to you and your wife that you're able to create a normal, in inverted commas, as normal as we can get in these abnormal times for the kids. Because I agree with you, you can't cocoon them, but at the same time, you can do what you can to make sure that, that what the adults are doing doesn't severely impact mm-hmm. on the kids. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I think that's terribly, terribly important, it seems to me. We, we've had a bunch of questions come in. I'll come to those in a second, if I may. Sure. And I want to ask you a question about, because it, it'd be fair to say that you're steeped in the UK political environment. So you, you know who is whom and you know who the players are and what they're doing and all that. Which, which politician do you admire most right now in the UK? It's a tough question, actually. I mean, I think if you look, in my view, there are probably three or four politicians in my lifetime who have who will have had a really lasting impact. You know, if you want to bring it up to that sort of level, I think there are three or four politicians who you could say have had will have an enduring legacy and who could be talked about, you know, in decades, maybe even hundreds of years to come. Um, and I would say they are in no particular order. Domestic politicians I'm talking about, UK-based politicians. I think Alex Salmond is one of them, without question. Uh, I think Margaret Thatcher is one. I think Nigel Farage is one. And I would say the fourth one is probably Martin McGuinness. Martin McGuinness because I think the transformation from, um, I suppose you could say, bomb maker to peacemaker was treated with a lot of scepticism, but I think in the end turned out to be very genuine uh, and without Martin McGuinness in particular, I think we probably wouldn't have uh, the peace in Northern Ireland that we currently do. Uh, and I think his transformation was quite something, not least because he was one of the most, when he died, Martin McGuinness was one of the most trusted politicians in Northern Ireland amongst the unionist community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's something which is which is quite difficult to believe. So I think in terms of impact, I would say he was, he was there. Nigel Farage, love them or loathe them, you have to look at what has happened in the UK over the last couple of decades and what happened in 2016, and you have to say that if it hadn't been for Nigel Farage, it probably wouldn't have happened. Um, and for that reason, I think you have to give him credit for being massively impactful. We probably would not be leaving the EU if it wasn't for Nigel Farage. Yeah. Um, uh, Margaret Thatcher, I guess, you know, for relatively obvious reasons, you know, I think that the, there are aspects of uh, Margaret Thatcher that would not get my support and, and aspects that would. I think probably one of the most difficult aspects of her legacy was the centralisation of the UK and her unwillingness to pass power to local authorities. I think that set the scene for a lot of what we 
a lot of the problems that we're seeing now. Um, but uh, you know, largely, although it's not remembered as an as a popular legacy in Scotland in many ways, I think uh, a lot of what is entirely necessary and uh, and much of it I would agree with. And Alex Salmond was the first one I mentioned, wasn't he? And uh, you know, I think that again, if you look at the Scottish cause. And you say to yourself, you know, somebody had to be in charge of it over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and if Alex Salmon didn't exist, would Scottish independence be where it is right now? You know, I think there's a pretty strong argument to say that it wouldn't. So, I mean, I think if you look at those four people, I maybe not answered your question directly because I think you asked who I admired. But certainly I think in terms of who has been the most impactful politicians of my lifetime uh, domestically, I would say those four. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to ask you who you, you admire because that's a sort of value laden question, and, and I apologise. Uh, but well, I but, think I mean there are a lot. I mean I you know I know I know a lot of politicians and work with a lot of politicians and day to day because of my job in lobbying. So you know, I, I, and I have a lot of interaction with all the leaders of the parties in Scotland over over the last decade or so. And you know, there's a lot to admire in in a lot of politicians that we have here and, and including in the leadership of of the main parties you know so uh, you know there, these are there are there are a lot of people of you know the Scottish Parliament can get slated sometimes and sometimes it deserves it but I think we have to acknowledge there are people of quality there as well and there's no question that the First Minister at the moment with the way that she's communicating COVID in particular um, I think is showing huge qualities uh, I think there's no question about that and I think people from all around the spectrum acknowledge that yeah yeah uh, just going back to Margaret Thatcher for a second, I, I think one of the the statements she made that causes, I think particularly in a Scottish context, uh, such uh, concern is when she said there is no such thing as society. Do you think she was misunderstood when she said that? Or, or do you think she actually meant that? And in what way does she mean it, do you think? Uh, that That statement has been poured over so often and you know the reality of that statement is that both sides will take it the way that they want to take it to frame their argument the way they can it, it was you know essentially an argument against statism uh it was an argument in favor of liberalism and you know for that reason you know i i used to be far more ideological than i am now and i get very tired of these arguments, to be honest. I think uh, the fact that we still talk about Margaret, Margaret Thatcher came into power the year I was born. She was out of power by the time I, I was still in primary school when she was out of power. Yeah. And the fact that we still talk about her an awful lot, I think is quite sad, actually, to be honest with you. You know, she has a legacy. Clearly, I've just identified her as one of the people who I think has been most impactful during my lifetime. But I think it's quite sad that we still pour over it because it's not relevant at all to what we're doing. And I think it says something about us, to be honest, as a nation, that it's not a, it's not a peculiarly Scottish thing. It's quite a British thing, actually. It's a symptom of modern Britain, I think, that we are far keener to look backwards than we are to look forwards all the time. Partly because we're looking for somebody to blame, partly because we're looking for somebody to argue about. But, you know, I would just rather be talking about what's going to be happening in 40 years' time rather than talking about something that happened 40 years ago. So I have no idea what she meant. You know, I was no. I was in single figures of age, and I don't I don't care. 
is the truth. I'm not interested, really, to be honest with you. I, you know, I look at the big picture of what she did, and as I said before, I think there was, I think there was good and bad. I don't see her as a wholly bad figure like most people, and I, I would dare say, you know, most people who are watching this, this cast would would do. Uh, at the same time, I don't see her as wholly good, but I also don't see her anymore as relevant. I just don't see her as relevant. I think, you know, we just need to talk about what's going to happen in the future, not what's happened in the past. Good point. Good point. Uh, in fact, one of the questions we got uh, ahead of time was from somebody who said, I would like to ask Andy two questions. One is, and this lines directly with the point you just made, Andy, what does he expect Scotland's political landscape to look like in five years' time? Well, I think we will have either had or will be preparing to have a second referendum on independence. You know, it seems to me the to be not inevitable but i think more likely than not that the snp will get a majority probably on its own in the election in may if that happens i think there will be a referendum you know there's a, a lot of discussion we could have about exactly how that will take shape and and so on but i think there should be one i mean i'm very clearly of the view that mandates must be respected and if the snp has a clear mandate from its manifesto and it wins the election, I think it's absolutely critical that there is a referendum. There must be one. And if people, you know, uh, nobody can argue that not, they don't know what they're voting for. You know, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. So I, I think there will be one. At the moment, I would say that probably in five years' time, we will either have left or will know that we are about to leave the UK. And I don't think that's necessarily because the SNP or the independence movement are doing a fantastic job because actually I, I, don't, I don't think they are, particularly the movement itself, um, I don't think is doing a good job of convincing enough of the 55% to vote no. Um, I think it's doing a very poor job at that, actually. Uh, but the reason I think that they might still win uh, is because the UK, uh, and in particular the UK government, is doing such a terrible job of selling unionism. So, uh, you know, in my view, there's much more of a push factor than a pull factor at the moment. I think the UK government is pushing people towards independence rather than the independence movement in Scotland pulling people towards independence. Nonetheless, I think unless the UK government quite drastically and urgently changes course, then yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, in five years time, we'll either be or we'll be uh, heading towards independence. I think you make a very good point, and it, and it must be a point that must be clearly evident to the UK government. Uh, I mean, because it's not it's not rocket science to say what you just said. Uh, mm. So, what conclusion can one draw when you look at the behaviour of the UK government, and knowing some of its very recent behaviour in particular has pushed people towards independence? What do you think the motivation is? Is it incompetence, or is it an unwillingness to face the facts, or is it just the inability to get some decent advice? I mean, what do you think is driving this? Um, there, there's a bit of all the factors you mentioned there, but I think there's one overriding factor that sits on top of all of that, and it's emotion. Unionists are far too emotional, and that's why they lose. That's why they're losing, because they are unable to take sensible decisions because they're so clouded by emotion all the time. So if you look at not so much the nationalist foot soldiers, but if you look at the nationalist leadership in the form of the SNP, they're a very clinical and pragmatic decision-making group. So uh, NATO, 
the Queen as head of state, keeping the pound. All of these things are probably not what your average nationalist would actually want. You probably wouldn't want the Queen as head of state. You probably wouldn't want the pound. But these are decisions that are made by the nationalist leadership because they know that it plays with the electorate. If, you know, if the nationalists immediately said, we are not having the Queen as head of state, we're getting rid of her, that's not going to go down well. And the nationalist leadership knows that. And so they adopt a pragmatic and clinical approach because they know that will help them to win. Unionism is unable to do that. It can't do it. Unionism is completely governed um, by emotion. We're not having another referendum. We've just had one. You said it was once in a lifetime. We're not doing it. Our union is so precious and so on and so on and so on. They're not thinking. There's no thought going into that. It's purely emotion. They are so consumed with hatred of nationalists that they cannot think straight about how to beat them. And it's because of that that they continue relentlessly, really, to make foolish, basic errors in strategy, which ultimately all contribute to putting votes in the SNP boxes uh, and putting numbers in, in the nationalist polling. And, and it's really because of bad decision making and it's because of emotion. Um, they, are, they, they seem unable to think straight about how to win. And the ironic thing is, I don't think it's that difficult, actually. You know, I think uh, a sensible, clear unionist campaign might be too late in a couple of years if the unionists had sat and thought, hmm, where's this going? Let's think about this. Let's think about, instead of, you know, our being consumed, being, oh, we're not having it, we can't have another referendum, we can't do this, and, you know, and, you know they're so afraid of it. Um, they haven't put any thought into how to actually win it. And to be honest, I don't think winning it would be all that difficult. I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird thing because, you know, almost any political expert advising them would say, you know, emotion loses you elections. You know, you, you have to be strategic. However, <laughs> you might feel inside. <laughs> you mustn't externalise that yeah. because you're about to lose if you do that. Because if there's anything that I think... Uh, I mean, I'm not a member of any political party, but looking at it from a distance, if there's anything that puts the voters off, <laughs> it's it's where they see rationality being replaced by emotion. And yeah. they think, well, no, no, I don't, that's not what I want from my leadership. I want somebody who's clear thinking and expresses himself clearly. Uh, th that I can relate to. Then I can listen to the arguments. I can't listen to arguments that just are based on, hey, I have a feeling in my water that this is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 indeed. So I mean, I, you know, and I think I, I think that sums up their their problems at the moment. Sorry, you were going to ask another question, John. Yeah, the, the question I was going to ask it harks back to uh, a piece you did in the uh, uh, I think it was it was covered in SDV News about a year ago, in which you said uh, uh, you you think that English nationalism nationalism is coming. This was fifth September, twenty nineteen. Uh, and the Conservatives are no longer a unionist party. Mm. Do you still hold to that? Um, yeah, I think that um, I remember writing things about that. And it was on the back of some polling that had been done of the Conservative membership. Um, and I certainly think uh, that that remains the case amongst the Conservative membership. 
which is far more interested in Brexit than it is in the union. Uh, and this is this is clearly expressed in polls. You know, a few the polling shows that delivering Brexit is significantly more important to them, and they and they want to deliver Brexit even if it uh, leads to the loss of Northern Ireland and Scotland, which are the two most obvious parts of the UK that would initially uh, no longer be part of it. That that is something that they are happy to handle. Um, yeah. Uh, and I don't. I and I have no objection to English nationalism. Uh, I don't think English nationalism is any more or less legitimate than Scottish nationalism. It's perfectly reasonable, and I also can see where it comes from because I think the devolution era has served England very, very poorly. Um, you know, the, especially in the north of England. You know, if you're sitting in Newcastle uh, and you see the the free prescriptions and the free student tuition and all the other quote unquote freebies that. Scotland gets, and you see the Barnet formula, and they've got their own parliament. Now, of course, you know, you can argue these things from the other side as well. But if you are somebody in the north of England seeing all that and thinking, well, uh, what are we getting out of this? You know, what are we getting out of this? Um, and I entirely understand where the sentiment, and I, I think a lot of it is tied up in Brexit as well. Not all of it, but I think a lot of it is tied up in Brexit. And I mean, I perfectly well understand. Yeah. If there is a, a, a growth of English nationalism, I entirely understand where it's coming from. Um, and I think it, I think it's you know I, I think it's obvious to be honest that that is what would happen when you have this asymmetric type of devolution. Essentially, that's why uh, I mean I, I don't I don't find unionist and nationalist labels particularly helpful. Um, I voted no in twenty fourteen, but I would never describe myself as a unionist. To be honest, uh, I'm a federalist, um, and I think on balance that's that's the best future for this country or the country of Scotland and the country of the UK is to, is to sit within a, a federalised nation. Um, and I, I also now, I, I think we've got to the point now and coronavirus is exacerbating that. Um, I think it's been a really interesting time with uh, mayors in particular uh, and the lack of connection between administrative powers and financial powers, which really is what furlough is all about. You know, you could solve furlough <coughs> by the devolution of financial powers. To yeah. the English regions and to the devolved nations, um, and I actually think that coronavirus is acting as a massive rocket booster to the final decision on what the shape of the UK constitution is. Yeah, certainly the opinion polls would confirm all of that. Uh, we're almost halfway through. I want to go back and take some questions, if if I may. Uh, <laughs> yes, Charlie Collins is asking, how would Andy Square, being a lobbyist, well not seeking to influence his children's political views. Uh, are you cut out not seeking to influence what political views? His Sorry, John, I missed the last word there. Views. How do you square being a lobbyist? Oh, right, okay. Well, at the same time uh, saying, I really don't want to influence my well, children. Um, because lobbying is not a party political venture. Uh, I lobby for primarily, primarily charities um, and private sector organisations, so it isn't anything to do with party politics. And my lobbying takes place with parties of... Uh, with MSPs of all parties in the parliament, so that uh, the two things are not really connected. Lobbying is lobbying is a political activity, but it's not a party political activity. So if anything, it would just you know it, it would it, if my if my kids knew what lobbying was and never asked me about it, <laughs> then, uh, it's it's more a uh, it's more a lesson in a lesson in democracy rather than a lesson in party politics. So no, the the two things are are not connected really. Well, lessons in democracy are always helpful and healthy. Somebody else is yeah. asking, <laughs> you know, if Scotland, 
is independent, as you were suggesting might be the case in, say, five or so years' time, what would the impact mm. on the UK be, do you think? Millie Jameson is asking this. Um, well, I think, you know, it would clearly be a negative impact for the UK because, you know, to for I think for a, a country like the UK, which has gone from being the global leader in centuries past to uh, feel itself ever shrinking is is quite difficult. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, that the, the straight answer is there wouldn't really be a UK. I mean, it might still be called the UK, but in reality, I think that Scotland would relatively rapidly be followed by the reunification of Ireland. And then you have England and Wales, really. Uh, and it might still call itself the UK, but, you know, it's, it's England and Wales. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, it, I think it would lose something. The UK may not be the, a global superpower anymore, but the UK continues to exercise quite a significant amount of soft power around the world and does very well at that. And, you know, losing parts of yourself, losing your limbs is a way to exercise that sort of soft power. So I think its reputation in the world generally would would absolutely diminish if, if Scotland yeah. wasn't part of it. I think there's no question about that. Economically, you know, any part of the UK, in my view, economically can survive and thrive on its own. Uh, yeah. And that's no less true of England than it is of anywhere else. I mean, England is, uh, would continue to be you know, a pretty significant global economic powerhouse, largely because it's got London in it. Uh, so I'm sure it would continue to be a kind of top 10 global economy, but it, but it, it, it wouldn't be the same. There's no question about it. it. It wouldn't be the same. I think these questions of identity, though, are, are, are quite interesting. Um, and I, I've thought about them a lot because of my belief in, in federalism. Um, and, yeah. you know, at what point do you not feel British? You know, for instance, leaving the European Union does not make me feel any more or less European, uh, just in the same way as, you, as if you ask somebody in Switzerland or Norway if they were European, yeah. they'd most likely say yes. They don't need to be members of the EU to feel European. So, you know, whatever happened on these islands of ours constitutionally, there is probably a likelihood that we'll still all end up feeling British to one extent or another. So, you know, I think that the whole mix of nationhood and you know, a legal legal national entities would uh, it would just develop organically, I think, uh, from there. But I mean, as a as a country, as a state, uh, the United Kingdom would clearly be diminished by the loss of Scotland. Is that one of the characteristics of federalism that would not apply in the case of independence? Do you think would that relationship not be possible with an independent state? But would be possible with federalism. I mean, I, I think the relationship would be very, clearly very different, not least because you're you're simply not part of the same country. So, a basic model of federalism would probably involve the UK as a country uh, taking care of certainly defence and foreign affairs and so on, and that and membership of of transnational organisations uh, as well. And so the the loss of that as a as an identity is would be quite different, and it would globally it would feel quite different, I think, to what independence would feel like. Internally, it, I suppose it is the case that independence and federalism would, may not feel a million miles apart in terms of our day to day lives. 
in the way that we control our money and our domestic affairs and our public services and so on. That, that may not feel entirely different, but I think that speaks slightly to a, a, a kind of globalist agenda anyway, in that, you know, nowadays at any one time, how much does it really matter what country you're sitting in and what it says in court? You know, I can, I can wire money to around the world in the next two minutes if I want to, and, and the world is so much smaller now than it was before. And I think that, so in terms of our day-to-day lives, it speaks to a slightly different agenda of everybody feeling highly connected anyway. But I think, you know, on some levels, there, you know, we have to acknowledge there's a, there's a significant difference between federalism and independence, I think, yes. Do you think there's any, and I hesitate to say this, but do you think there's any appetite outside of Scotland for federalism? Um, I'm not sure there's that much appetite inside Scotland for federalism, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I'm not pretending it's a solution which people are being for. Most people don't even understand what the word means. But sometimes you need to lead people there if you know that's what's going to be the right solution for the country. So, no, I don't think people are sitting around the dinner table in most cases saying, you know, if only we had federalism, then everything would be okay. But I actually, you know, I think that it feels to me inevitable that the way that we are going, and and as I say, COVID has acted as a rocket booster for this, the way that we are going, not just in Scotland, uh, but in Northern Ireland, Wales, and the regions of England as well, is we are rushing now towards a new of some sort. And this is quo is the status quo is what's not relevant anymore, I think. You know, I think this yeah. has become very clear, particularly in the year 2020, is just how irrelevant the status quo now is. And I hope that politicians, not just uh, in London, but up here as well, I hope politicians understand that. I hope they are able to detach themselves a little bit from the bubble and understand the status quo is dead. And that really the only two options now are the breakup of the UK or a new type of union, which is based on much, I was going to say looser there, but you know, I think looser is an emotive word that suggests a sort of disconnection. You know, I don't think that uh, Australia or Canada or Germany or the US would consider themselves to be loose in terms of national identity. Really, all I'm saying is a movement towards more localization. And I, th- I think that's the only other option now. This is going to require politicians, and it'll have to be led from London. This is going to require politicians in London to say, okay, this is not going, this is not working. This is not going anywhere good. So we need to do something which is going to last for a hundred years. And whatever they do will be remembered forever. You know, it's a very, very significant political moment coming up and somebody's going to have to do it. Somebody's going to have to make that step and say, okay, we're going to have to reform entirely the way the UK looks uh, in a much bigger way than we did in the late 90s with devolution. You know, this is, this is a once in a hundred years event. And I think it has to happen for the UK to continue. And so to go back to your original question, no, there's probably not a clamouring for it amongst the population. But, you know, in 2006, where people sitting around the dinner table saying, you know, I wish I had an iPhone. No, but Apple invented it. And then, you know, two billion people bought one. So I, I would say that's what has to happen. 
I think, though, if you, it's a difficult comparison, the, the pace of UK political change and technological mm, well, advancement. Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, but that, I, I would say that's, um, I would say that's slightly damning on UK political change, you know. Um, other countries that. do change. Other countries change. I mean, I, um, I did a little bit of work in Canada uh, on Stephen Harper's first election campaign, which was in 2006. And I was just a young guy. I was 20, 26 years old. Uh, and I was over there for a couple of weeks just learning from, uh, from Harper and his team. And, you know, there's a guy, Stephen Harper, who was in the Conservative Party and thought, this is not working. Left the Conservative Party, started a new party, which ev effectively eviscerated the Conservative Party and then changed its own name back to a similar, but not the same name that used to be the Progressive Conservatives and is now the Conservative Party of Canada. It's actually a different party. And that all happened in the space of, what was that, Reform Party, I think he started in the early 90s. And 13, 15, 13 14, 15 years later, he was Prime Minister. You know, he leaves a political party, starts a new one, and within a decade and a half, he's Prime Minister. So things can happen quickly if people have vision and guts. It does happen. It just doesn't happen here very often. No, it doesn't happen. Well, some would argue it doesn't happen at all very quickly. I mean, we've still got the House of Lords uh, with unelected people mm -hmm. making laws. Uh, we yep. have clerics who are there by virtue of their religious persuasion making laws. The mm -hmm. only other country in the world where that occurs is Iran, uh, to the best yeah. of my knowledge. That, that's not a good example to follow. Well, uh, and that's quite right. And, you know, you say that, John, and it makes me... Well, it's, it's interesting, though, because... Um, uh, I mean, I agree, and I, I, I don't believe in that. I think the House Lords should be uh, replaced by a Senate as part of what I would see as a Federalist solution. But, you know, it is interesting today of all days where we see Donald Trump joining the likes of Hugo Chavez, Fidel Castro, Vladimir Putin, uh, as people who don't uh, respect election results. Mm. We do sit here in a country which has one of the world's biggest unelected chambers. And, uh, you know, we don't have a big, we're in a glass house here, I think when it comes to that sort of thing? Oh, I would agree with that completely. I mean, first past the post doesn't have a great deal to commend it nowadays. I mean, we have an odd situation where the devolved authorities are elected on one system and the parent, if you can call it that, parliament, is elected on a, a, a rather antiquated system that over-rewards mm. uh, the, 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 yeah. the party in power and, and under-represents the others. Uh, it's... it's Hard to defend that. Uh, yeah, uh, but yet there's no real appetite. For yeah, this. you know, I think that I would, I would, I would, I think the arguments for and again, uh, first past the post has its merits. You know, it's pretty easy to get rid of a government and get a new one in. I, I am, I have moved from being more of a supporter of proportional representation now than first past the post, and I would reform the Westminster voting system along PR lines. But you know, I think we have to from talk of you know democratic illegitimacy first past the post is a perfectly democratic system it's just one that works in a different way to uh, proportional representation so i don't have i don't have a problem with countries using that and it, uh, what i would do is i would separate an argument about first past the post from an argument about the house of lords that sure. those are those are different things i think first past the post is in the bracket over here with you know choose your democratic system uh, and the house of lords is in a different bracket over here of something that's not democratic do you think the UK should have a written constitution? 
Well, I think that if if we were going to move towards a more federalised system, then it would probably have to have some form of written constitution. Yeah, yeah, I think it would have to. I don't think there's really any way out of that now. Uh, and I think it would be helpful in as a renewal. I mean, we need a national renewal here. The truth is, I don't, I don't mind that much what happens, is the truth. I'm not that exercised by nationalism. I think it's because... I think it's because I live here and now most of my adult life has been spent talking about this all the time. Mm. Uh, you know, all the while we have, in my view, heavily, heavily underperforming public services, but we don't talk about it. You know, I think we have a really, really pretty backward transport infrastructure and digital infrastructure. We don't talk about them because all we do is talk about this all the time. And I think it's made me pretty jaded, to be honest. So. You know, I, I just don't care what my passport says. I, I feel content to be Scottish, but not that proud to be Scottish. I feel content to be British and not that proud to be British. Yeah. I feel content to be European. I just, I'm not that bothered. I'm sure being Slovenian is fine. Uh, and I, I, what grates me is the sort of Scottish and British exceptionalism that we have so often because it's very seldom justified, I have to be honest. I really think it's very seldom justified. And so my main aim, my, from a personal perspective, my main wish here is that we just get over this one way or another. And if that means staying in the UK, fine. If that means independence, fine. But I would like to get the question answered because I really think we need to start talking about important things before it's too late. I, I do lots of these shows. We've now done almost a quarter of a century of them. And we've spoken to people in different parts with different views on the constitution and uh, politics generally. And people have no views whatsoever, uh, completely apolitical, don't think it's terribly relevant to their lives, frankly. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, and others who feel very passionately. And exceptionalism is an issue. But then again, if you look at the US, I mean, I spent some time in the US. Uh, the, the US is is exceptionalist in, in almost every respect. People yeah. say we are the best, we are the greatest. If you want to get elected, you say make America great again. It's 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 like we, we want mm. to be exceptional yet again. So it's it's not an unusual pitch, as it were, to talk about. It's it's not, but I think in fairness to the US, it is exceptional at some things. It is exceptional at some things. Not everything, and not everything that it says it is by any means. Yeah. But it is exceptional at some things, partly because of its size. So, I mean, also China's exceptional at some things. And, you know, <laughs> but, our, but I actually, I actually think we, we somewhat kid ourselves in this country. And when I say this country, people can take that, whatever it means, because it applies the same at Scotland or the UK. I think we kid ourselves in this country to feel like we're doing well. I don't think we're doing terribly well, to be honest. I really don't. I don't think we're doing terribly well. Not the things that really matter to people. I don't think we're that good at them anymore. Well, I, just, I, think, I think we think we are, but I don't think we are. I, I think particularly when people look at COVID, it, it would be hard to say we're doing exceptionally well. I, I think you're right in some parts. Yeah. We're, we're definitely communicating it better. There's no question about that. But it's a big thing. You know, you, you, you can't say to folks, we're going to lock down and not give them some sort of income. You, you have to support them somehow. Otherwise, you'll have mm-hmm. riots on the streets and all sorts. I mean, and people will just disregard the advice they get because they have no option. They have to put bread on the table. I mean, it's that's the reason. 
and I think a lot of that is is is, is, is a sort of interesting type development. I want to go back to the questions again, if I may. One question that's cropped up is, what what do you think that the Scottish Tories must do to best prepare for May's elections? I think the Scottish Tories have just got to try and get through this election, to be honest. I don't think there's that much they can do at this point that's going to change the outcome. And if I were them, I'd be trying to shore things up as well as possible. Emerge with maybe somewhere in the kind of 25 plus seats. I think that would be a decent result under the circumstances. I think what they probably at this point have to do is ensure that there is something of a core vote strategy. And that probably means, much as I think it's not a sustainable message, it probably means saying no to NDRF2 and just continuing that message because that certainly shores up the core vote. I think Douglas Ross picking fights with Westminster, which he's been doing um, uh, over the last few weeks, is probably a sensible thing to keep doing, just to try and put into the minds of voters that little bit of differentiation between the Scottish Tories and the UK yeah. Tories. Yeah. And I think that what they want to do and what I think is you know, relatively sensible is to talk about public services as much as possible, particularly education. I think that makes sense to talk about that because... You know, there is a problem there in Scotland. There's no question about that, in my view. There is a problem there. But, but you know, Douglas Ross is not going to be First Minister in May. This, for the Tories, is about trying to get enough seats that, that they can contribute to the SNP not getting a majority. I mean, I think unless anything unexpected happens... You know, we're clearly trending towards a situation where the Scottish Tories are going to lose seats. Labour are going to lose seats as well, most probably. And, you know, where are those seats going to go? Well, they're probably going to go, you know, they're, not, they're not all going to go to the Lib Dems. Some of them might go to the Greens. Some of them might go to the Lib Dems. But are enough of them going to go to the SNP for the SNP to get a majority? So, I mean, I think what should be in the Tories' minds is just get through to me. Just get through it be in a reasonable position with somewhere in the mid-20s of seats so that you have a base to build on for the next five years after that. Yeah. But actually, I would, if I were in the Scottish Tory uh, setup, I would say to them, you know what, you've got to spend your time now, right now, thinking about exactly what you're going to do the day after the election. What's the referendum strategy? What's the unionist strategy? Because you're going to have to start doing it on May the 7th. So I, I would worry a little less about the election as long as they can shore up enough of their support to get through with a respectable number. Yeah. I'd start thinking a bit more about what they're going to do after because that's really the, that's really the issue. What do you do afterwards? That, that, what they do afterwards will decide the future of the UK. What they do before that won't. So, right, so for the foreseeable future until the election, it's about damage limitation, is that? I would say so, and I, that's no different to that's no different to Labour either. I would say, incidentally, yeah. I mean, I think Labour yeah. find themselves in a relatively similar position. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I think it is damage limitation. You know, we, the, the, the polls the polls don't lie. Um, yeah. The polls are all trending the same way, yeah. and we can talk about all the reasons why that's happening, and and they are multiple, but but it's happening. Um, and I, I you know I think what the Tories need to make sure they do is to stop the bleeding limit the damage, um, so, but for goodness sake, assume, work out what they're going to do afterwards. So, so let's look about what they might want to do afterwards. If, if you were a Conservative, 
you know, a, a committee conservative, but not necessarily a committed unionist. Do you think you'd be preparing for independence? I, I don't think that's necessary, really. You know, if independence came, the political map in Scotland would look quite different. And there's no reason to suspect that a centre-right party would not do very well in an independent Scotland. You know, we would, if it, if it was the case that a centre-right party couldn't be elected to govern an independent Scotland, that would make Scotland the anomaly of Europe. Because all over Europe, including in Scandinavia, uh, the centre-right are very often in power. So I don't think that... Uh, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, Andy. But yeah, yeah, it's okay. Isn't Scotland already exceptional in that regard? There is no right-wing or even centre-right independence party. No, uh, well, yes. Yeah, they're, and all, actually, they're, all, uh, they're all left of centre, and there's a whole bunch of them, really. Yeah. You know, you would think that anyone looking at this who's a Conservative would be saying to themselves, there's an opportunity for me here. If I'm not a deeply committed unionist, I don't have that emotional now, thing going on, uh, I'd be saying to myself, I want to carve myself a chunk of this come independence. It'd be crazy for me not to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in there to unpack. So the financial settlement and the devolution settlement actively discourages centre-right thought. Because centre-right and liberal thought is based on, uh, you know, if you look at it from a financial point of view, it's effectively based on an easy set of taxes to encourage economic growth. Now, we don't have the fiscal setup that would allow for Kate Forbes to put in place an easy set of taxes because the growth that came from those would not come back to Scotland. It would effectively, because of the Barnett formula and the way the system works, uh, it's not growth that we would then get back. You know, the point of easy taxes, as many politicians over the years, including famously JFK, have said, is that, you know, you encourage greater growth through lower taxes uh, and that helps pay for the public mm -hmm. services and so on that, that lift those uh, at the bottom up. And we just don't have the system that can do that. So centre-right politics starts with one arm tied behind its back in Scotland because of the constitutional settlement. Um, so that's one reason why there's been very little progress from the centre-right. I think the other thing is that our constitutional debate discourages new parties to emerge. So there are plenty of people in the SNP who would, in any other country, you know, if let's say this was, I don't know, let's say this was Germany. Mm. There are plenty of people in the SNP who would be in Angela Merkel's party, the CDU. Plenty mm. of them. They wouldn't all be in the SPD. They wouldn't all be Social Democrats. Nicola might be, uh, but a lot of others would not. They'd be in the centre-right party in any other country in Europe. But there's really no incentive for any kind of breakaway from the SNP to do that. And, you know, the SNP is a party that is as wide, has as wide a spectrum as probably any political party in the world, but they are held together by the glue of the independence which sits in front of them. Um, and so you tend to find that the only splinters you get from these movements are kind of more radical, usually radical leftist splinters yeah. from them, which you see, is, which you see happening. Um, but there, there, there's not a mainstream split from from but, these parties. There's no incentive to have one. Andy, couldn't you look at it the other way around and say the SNP has capitalised upon the fact that no one has stepped up to the plate and said, I, would, I am forming a centre-right or right-wing nationalist party? 
Well, they've, they've capitalised. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the the other parties have done for twenty years exactly what the SNP wanted them to do um, throughout the entirety of devolution. I think the best example to look at the alternative option is Canada and specifically Quebec. So you have a situation in Quebec where the Parti Québécois is, I think, currently sitting third in the, in the Quebec Assembly. Um, and above it are two parties which are not sovereigntist parties, not, not nationalist parties, but they're also not parties that have seats in the parliament in Ottawa. So Quebec has a completely independent political system, as do all the provinces in Canada, mm. where they have parties that only sit in that provincial assembly. They don't sit. So you have your federal parties, provincial parties, and they have no relationship with each other. Mm. And what that means is that if you are a Quebec nationalist, you, you still feel like you can vote for one of the other parties because they are also Quebec parties. They're not Canadian yeah. parties, they're Quebec parties. The problem here is that you, we don't have any other parties that are Scottish. All the other parties are British parties with a Scottish offshoot here. So if you're an SNP voter who, who is of the centre-right and who doesn't particularly like the centre-left disposition of the SNP leadership, you don't have anywhere to go if you're a nationalist. You don't have anywhere to go. You're not going to vote for the Tories. There's nobody else to vote for. Um, and so I think the combination of all these things that I've talked about have led us into this situation where we have one single dominant party. It's a perfect storm. You know, we've got the wrong structure at the wrong time. Um, and, because, and because independence is now so, so close and because the next referendum is so close in front of our noses, no, there's no incentive for anybody to do anything about it. Yeah. Well, but that could change, to go right back to your question, yes, that would be an enforced change if we were independent. Yeah. But there's also no reason why it couldn't change as part of a federalist structure. Yeah. Because all it would take is for the UK parties to say, well, look, we're not going to organise at Scottish Parliament level anymore. The Lib Dems, Labour and the Tories could simply say, look, we're not organising at, at Scottish Parliament level now. We will stand in Scotland for Westminster. We'll stand candidates for Westminster in Scotland for the federal parliament. But we're not going to stand candidates for the Scottish Parliament. We'll let other parties okay. form and do that instead. Now, that, that can work perfectly well, just like it does in Canada. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting indeed. Andy, thanks very much. Our time's almost up. It okay. goes fast. <laughs> it does go fast, doesn't it? Time flies. You, you sit down, you have a few words, and before you know where you are, you know, we're, we're almost at eight o'clock. Thank you very much indeed. Much appreciated. And uh, it, you're right. It's a Thanks great, for having me. It's very good of you. It, it, it's a great pleasure, I can tell you. Uh, and as things develop, perhaps you might want to come back and we can talk about this some more, maybe in the light of the US elections and the, the light of the uh, Scottish elections yep. that are coming up in May. Happy to. That, that's been very interesting. Thank you. And a big thanks to all of you out there for, for watching and, and listening tonight. We hope you've enjoyed the TNT show. We'll look out for that, please. And very importantly, support Indie Live. And thanks again. Good night. Join us next Wednesday. A big thank you again to Andy. And remember, it's been a great day for democracy. Good night, all.